folks, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast really highlights the importance of collaboration and the importance of big data and how we can actually approach a disease that is very, you know, it's not, you know, how can we improve on the success of treating a disease, leveraging the big data and collaboration? Um, I have the honor and privilege of hosting three amazing investigators and faculty members at three various institutions who have come together to work on a disease called Hodgkin lymphoma. For those of you who are listening, Hodgkin lymphoma is a disease that oftentimes we say it is curable. And indeed it is. It is really more curable than not. So if you take all comers with Hodgkin lymphoma that come into the clinic, we cure more patients than those that we are unable to cure. Having said that, the cure could come at a cost of late side effects, late, you know, late-term side effects. And you know, we don't really cure everybody. So not 100% of patients are cured. So the question is, what can we actually do to improve on the outcomes of Hodgkin lymphoma while minimizing the toxicities of the therapies that we actually give? Well, these folks I'm hosting today have taken on the effort of capturing worldwide data of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma from across the globe, individual level data to try to answer all of the questions that might come to mind. And they formed a consortium called the Holistic Consortium. You can find this on HodgkinConsortium.com, and they are starting to produce uh, research publications and papers looking at prognostic predictive models that hopefully can shape and drive the way we take care of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. I have the honor of hosting Dr. Susan Parsons. She is a professor at uh, Tufts University. She has a lot of, uh, she's a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and has a lot of interest in quality of life and, and obviously treating uh, patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, the adolescents and young adults, as we call them, the AYA. Dr. Andrew Evans, he's an Associate Vice Chancellor, Clinical Innovation and Data Analytics at Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, He's the Associate Director of Clinical Services at Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, and he's a professor of medicine at Rutgers um, uh, Robert Wood Johnson uh, Medical Center. Uh, also, uh, I am hosting Dr. Matt Maurer. He is the lead faculty statistician for the Lymphoma Research Program at the Mayo Clinic, the co-director of the Biostatistics and Bioinformatics Core of the University of Iowa and Mayo Clinical Lymphoma Specialized Programs for of Research Excellence, the SPORE Grant, and the Director of the Statistics and Informatics Core of the Multicenter Lymphoma Epidemiology of Outcomes, what we call the LEO cohort. Dr. Maurer's primary research interest is the evaluation of clinical endpoints and development of prognostic models and decision tools. He has been on my podcast previously. These amazing faculty members are going to discuss with us the holistic consortium and the effort that has taken to build that big data uh, and how this was analyzed and covering the unmet need in Hodgkin lymphoma. Without further ado, Drs. Maurer, Parsons, and Evans on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. 
we'll start by some intros and uh, we'll, uh, uh, you know, we're going to go on a first name basis in a little bit, but I'll start with Dr. Parsons uh, first and then um, Dr. Evans and then uh, Dr. Matt Maurer. Any, any, any label you want to say, Matt, I'm okay with. But That uh, works just fine for me. Susan, we'll start with you. Thank you very much. Um, I am Susan Parsons. I'm a AYA, an adolescent and young adult oncologist in Boston at Tufts Medical Center and the co-principal investigator of the Holistic Consortium about which we'll discuss this today. Andy. Chadi, great to always uh, see you, talk with you. I'm so happy for you and your success of, of this podcast as we reminisce about our Northwestern days. Can you believe it's been over 20 years? I can, but it's really, it's really, <laughs> I don't know if you be happy or sad about this. It's a long time. Yeah, I think a little bit of both. But Chadi and I were, were co-fellows at, at Northwestern. So Susan and I had crossed paths. I was at Tufts in Boston for about five years. I'm an adult oncologist with a specialty in lymphoma. And for a little over six years now, I'm in the great state of New Jersey at RWJ Barnabas Health and the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey. Great to see you, Andy, and congrats on all of the success that you've, you've, you've achieved so far and more to come. Matt? Hey, I'm Matt Maurer. I'm a biostatistician and lymphoma researcher at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, had the opportunity to collaborate as a co-investigator with uh, Dr. Parsons and Dr. Evans on the Holistic Consortium. Done a lot of work in... Um, you know, these these big consortium type things through our Leo cohort and MER um, observational study over the years. And thanks for <clears throat> having me back on, Chadi. It's been a few years since I've been on the, the podcast. But yeah, yeah. And we're going to have uh, more of you. We're talking about additional topics. But so so I want to start with just a little bit about Hodgkin for folks who probably don't know much about. And Andy, it's it's what's the I mean, what's the current state? How good are we in treating this disease? I mean, you know, when you just, you know, how many cases are we dealing with a year uh, of this disease and how good of a job are we doing? Yeah, I think that's, those are good questions. And to put it in perspective, I mean, generally, and we can say this not just in the last few years, but frankly, the last 20 years, that generally speaking, we're almost regardless of age um, and definitely regardless of stage, it's a very treatable and curable cancer. Uh, we can say for sure the majority of patients are cured. And we know this was one of the first, in addition to ALL in the 1960s, where multi-agent chemotherapy broke through with the regimen, uh, as I know you know, Chadi, called MOP, and soon became ABVD, where we are curing 80, 90% of patients, even patients with advanced stage, stage four. And so someone could say, well, gosh, um, haven't you reached a summit? And, and we haven't, we haven't, and, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we still use, in most patients, multi-agent chemotherapy and sometimes radiation. Uh, and number two, the majority of patients are younger. Uh, the median age is late 20s, early 30s. And so you could imagine if you're treating and curing patients in their 20s and 30s and having to deliver cytotoxic chemotherapy radiation, there are so-called post-acute and late effects or late consequences that we can talk more about. And so it's really, an, I, I would view this still as, as an unmet need. And there've been studies to back that up. And when you look at it through the lens of societal burden, uh, believe it or not, Hodgkin lymphoma ranks as the second highest cost 
per death or lost productivity cost is another way due to premature cancer-related morbidity and mortality de years and decades down the road. And so our hope and goal generally in the big picture, whether adolescents and, and older patients as well, how can we keep that bar higher, maybe even push it higher, get into the high 90s and do so with less cytotoxic therapy and more targeted therapeutics? This is a great primer, and I, I was not aware, actually, Andy, that it has that much of a societal uh, burden. That is that was, that was is new information for me. It's very, actually, helpful to put things in perspective. Susan, why would one person, if I have Hodgkin, why would I see you versus seeing Andy? I mean, is it just the luck of the draw who I actually call? Because, I you know, I mean, somebody tells me that... Um, AYA adults and uh, adolescents and young adults up to the age of 40 uh and it just seems a little bit like you know it's hard to tell somebody who's 40 that he's a teenager so help us understand why would the Hodgkin lymphoma sees you versus Andy I think that's a great question I think that historically most of the referrals for uh initial evaluation really were based on word of mouth and reputation of the treating physician. And it was really striking that you could walk into the pediatric door of, a, of an academic medical center or into the adult door and get very, very different treatment. Um, and that was uh, really striking to those of us that work within that space. Um, up until very recently, if you were treated on the more pediatric-like approach, um, in addition to the four drugs that Andy mentioned, you might get even more drugs. You might get six drugs. You also would have a much higher likelihood of getting radiation to your sites of bulky disease. In our most recent clinical trial, which finished a couple of years ago, about 50% of patients treated on the pediatric protocol received radiation. On the most recent adult trial, also for advanced stage disease, virtually no one received radiation. So those are very striking differences, but why would you go to one place versus the other? I mean, some of it has to do with comfort. Some of it has to do with age. I think the group where we see the greatest uh, confusion is the late adolescents and early um, young adults. So patients who are maybe in the 18 to 21 to 23 year age range. And that difference that I mentioned about one door versus the other extends beyond simply the treatment. It also, um, there are pretty profound differences in the way we direct, we direct supportive care virtually all the patients on the pediatric side would get a drug uh, for cardioprotection, meaning um, used to decrease the toxicity of the chemotherapy drugs against the heart. That's very, very uncommon on the adult side, at least in lymphoma. So Susan, just to clarify for listeners, so let's say a 20-year-old walks into your clinic versus Andy's clinic are they going to receive different recommendations in terms of therapy? So if I see, if a 20 year old sees you, we're talking same stage, same histology. 
Is it just the fact that they see a pediatric hematologist, they make a different recommendation than adult hematologists? Historically, that was true. However, recently, uh, as recently as the past four or five years, we as a lymphoma community have gotten together, and I would say we've gotten our act together, and we are now writing consensus protocols where there isn't that kind of difference of pediatric versus adult. Uh, we just completed a large trial for patients 12 years of age and older with no upper limit in age, so 85 or whatever, uh, and they get the exact same treatment. And that's been, I think, really revolutionary. I don't know, Andy, you're not yeah, in your head. Andy, I think Andy what, led, what led to that? Like, what, what led to the fact that, you know, you guys started thinking, why are we doing things differently? Was there like a tipping point where somebody like the light bulb came, came on and what happened? Yeah, I think there were, it was a little bit of everything where there were light bulbs. I think there's always been that genesis of collaboration. And mm -hmm. I, I think what helped spurred it are at a couple different levels and really at the national level. What, number one, at the CTEP cooperative group level. So some of our lymphoma leaders like Jonathan Friedberg, John Leonard, Brad Call, working with, at the time, the, co the chair of the lymphoma group for COG, Dr. Kara Kelly, now Dr. Sharon Castellino and, and Susan as, as a role, really coming together and saying, why are we doing it differently? And can we harmonize our recommendations? And those aren't easy conversations to have. It's not a flip the switch, snap the fingers. It's weeks, if not months long uh, conversation. But the recent study that Susan alluded to, S1826, was the nivolumab AVD versus brentuximab AVD, brentuximab vedotin. That was an oral presentation, I'm sorry, a plenary oral presentation at ASCO by Alex Herrera. And Dr. Sarah Rutherford on older patients had an oral presentation for older patients at ASH. And there was also on the AYA population. But this has also been led through the foundation. So the Lymphoma Research Foundation, as an example, Chadi, recently kicked off. They haven't really externally marketed this, a AYA consortium to really break down all the pieces. Great that we're doing studies together, planning trials. What about at the local level to your point of a patient calls a cancer center, do they get directed to pediatric, to adult? What is an AYA program? And, and there is not one size fits all. And at the end of the day, how can we get the best resources to the patient at that time? And as you know, I'll just lastly mention, there are some, uh, eight, I saw an 18-year-old patient recently that our pediatric, pediatric oncology experts were like, why aren't we seeing this patient? But this was a guy who was a football player, multiple tattoos, a very mature 18-year-old that wouldn't have fit well in the pediatric center with stuffed animals and, and other um, nice mm -hmm. visuals. Whereas I also, we also had a patient who was 26-year-old female who was really more tracking in her mid-teens that was much better served with child life services and some of those resources that Susan was mentioning with our pediatric oncologist. So it's not a one size fits all. Right. And Matt, I'm going to get to you, but I just want to get set the stage uh, a little bit more on the clinical <laughs> side before we get into the big data. But Andy, in order for, I'm presuming, there's something that happened that led the pediatric and the adult hematologists to talk to each other, whether it is data that demonstrated, for example, 
that if you do this, you're going to get better outcomes. And then somebody said, well, wait a minute, we should really think about doing this. Was there something that actually got published or demonstrated that if you treat these AYA patients using protocol A versus B, you are going to have better outcomes? And this is why you should talk to each other, Susan and Andy? Yeah, there's been a couple uh, publications. They're always like looking retrospective. Retrospective. One study versus another. Um, uh, we we have looked at some of those. And it's Tara Henderson at University of Chicago and I had co-authored and Susan was a co-author looking at trying to do patients do better on one trial versus another. But I think at the end of the day, at really the simplest level, it was leaders coming together uh, frankly, I remember a conversation with Kara Kelly at, at the International Hodgkin Lymphoma Meeting we have every two years in Cologne, Germany. And why are we doing things so different? And it is a precious resource. These are patients. This is not the most common lymphoma. And I didn't answer the question initially. It's about 8,000 cases a year, which is one-tenth as common as non-Hodgkin's. And if we're all on our own islands, studying our own cocktails and regimens, it's going to be slower progress. But if we come mm -hmm. together and harmonize, uh, maybe make some uh, different deliberations and decisions we wouldn't have done in our on our own island and build those bridges and make a continent, we can make progress faster. Yeah, I, I think that there is another um, very big change that occurred nationally at, at the National Cancer Institute in 2014, which was really the reconfiguration of the National Clinical Trials Network. And I think that when that all happened, many of our smaller clinical trial groups were brought together, coalesced to form larger groups. Um, this happened in pediatric oncology where four of the predecessor groups uh, came together to form the children's oncology group. And similarly, um, on the adult side, that change in 2014 also gave us the opportunity to think more nationally and less locally. Up until that time, many of the cooperative groups were focused on a particular geography you know, whether it's the southwestern part of the United States, the eastern part of the United States. And with the realignment um, of the cooperative groups, there was much more of a national focus. With that realignment, we also got our marching orders, which was get your act together. Uh, there's going to be the uh, much more opportunity for collaboration, but also expectation that we not duplicate effort, that we not be... At, at loggerheads against each other. Yeah, I mean, stop competing and work with with each other. So, so for those who are listening, what I mean, how, can we summarize the? I don't like to use the unmet need just because I think sometimes I agree with Andy. There are unmet needs. I just think sometimes that word gets overused in everything. What are I would say the un answer, what are the remaining questions in Hodgkin lymphoma? I got the point we need to reduce toxicity uh, because it's a huge burden. What else are you seeking to answer? Are there top five things? Yeah, I, and we've taught, we've touched on a few of them, Chadi. I'll, I'll quickly chime in. I mean, we've mentioned older patients, and that obviously is a relative term, but at least in Hodgkin's, 
there's a demarcation of survival drop-off over age 60, although it's really from age 30 kind of exponential up in terms of uh, ability to cure. So we cure more patients in the contemporary era, older patients, but that would be, I would say, and this isn't in order, but top five. I would say uh, number two, relapse refractory disease. We do an okay job, but the standard of care is uh, autologous and sometimes allogeneic, but much less commonly stem cell transplant. So a question is, do we need a transplant for everyone in the era of novel therapeutics? Are there especially late relapses? So I think that's a second one. Um, a third one would be still integration of novel therapeutics in place of chemotherapy. So an open, really important, I think, uh, although a little biased because I'm the ECOG champion, but as Susan's involved as well, AHOD2131 is a national clinical trial that, again, is COG and all the adult groups together working together. COG is leading it. But it's taking the standard of care for early stage Hodgkin lymphoma, which is four to six cycles of chemotherapy plus minus, plus minus radiation, randomizing to only two cycles of chemotherapy, then novel targeted therapeutics, antibody drug conjugate and checkpoint inhibitor. And then lastly, and this is a fourth, I, I, I won't, won't, won't give you a five, I'm giving you a four, is great data we have under the hood. But... I is it still one size fits all? Because every study is a little different, even within advanced stage. This study has slightly different characteristics and treatments and this. So of the tens of thousands of patients, is do we have an opportunity to actually set up models where we can better predict for this patient, I think this might be the best treatment for you now and into the future? Susan, any other questions you think that uh, this is really interesting, these four topics, but anything else that you would think the next five years are critical to address beyond what Andy mentioned? I think in addition to everything Andy said, I would add that we really don't understand what the uh, long-term complica complications are associated with novel therapy. We yeah. don't know what the five to 10 year, 20 30 or 40 year horizon looks like for a young person who's treated with with immunotherapy and i think that that is going to be critical information that we gain and need to get incorporated into models such as those that we're building to understand their therapeutic selection it may be we're just exchanging one disease for another disease and and we really have to sort that out the other um, thing that we don't really understand, although I think our, our clinical trials data are beginning to tell us, is what the long-term complications are of some of the toxicities that we have, I wouldn't say ignored, but not highlighted. And those are the low-grade toxicities that become quite chronic for patients. So. Uh, one of our novel therapies is associated with uh, low-grade neuropathy. Well, again, what does a lifelong course with low-grade neuropathy mean? And what can patients do and what can't they do? Uh, what are their long-term risks like falling or uh, not being able to do simple tasks like keyboarding or caring for themselves? Um, I think we need much more information 
from the patients about what that experience is all about. Matt, what you guys have done at Mayo and other institutions is you've taken on the idea of building these registries. Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about the registries and are they are registries the way you're building them, how big they are, but are they able to answer some of these questions that you just heard Andy and Susan talk about? Yeah, I, I think we need registries to answer some of these questions specifically because clinical trials are in a limited set of patients. The follow-up on clinical trials isn't necessarily going to give you uh, data beyond five years or give you that 10 to 20 year time frame on things because oftentimes the trials are designed to read out the primary endpoint and you don't have long-term follow-up on those patients. You're looking at a disease where most people do really well. So to really continue to make improvements, because we, we don't want to, we keep want to advancing the science, right? But we're often dealing with more rare events from a, um, a outcome standpoint. And so we need time to accrue those outputs endpoints. And so registries allow us to give us a broad horizon in that, as well as uh, generate enough sample size to really start looking at some of these things that, you know, might be uncommon or take a while to accrue or to happen, but are also very clinically meaningful. And so it's, uh, you need this balance between the clinical trials to test new therapies, but also um, have these other sources of quality data um, that have, um, in, you know, in, in the case of what we're looking at here in holistic, some of the things we've done through our, our SPORE mechanism in LEO, where you're enrolling patients, um, trying to capture patients at time of diagnosis, and then observe them. So kind of a profs, prospective observational cohort, and then and then follow up for survivorship and, and other clinical outcomes. And so it's a... Um, it's an important aspect of the research portfolio, aside from clinical trials, that I think to really move the field forward, you need to be doing both. How big is, um, you mentioned LEO and you mentioned the MIR um, registries. Um, how big are the Hodgkin lymphoma patients at these registries? Yeah, that's a great question. So so um, the MER was started, the Molecular Epidemiology Resource at Mayo Clinic and University of Iowa started in 2002 enrolling newly diagnosed patients with lymphoma at Mayo Clinic and University of Iowa. And it was originally developed as part of our SPORE grant and grew from there. And so between 2002 and 2015, we enrolled about 7,000 patients with lymphoma through the MER. Uh, and that included Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe we had about 700 patients with Hodgkin, but don't quote me on that. Andy and right. Susan are nodding because we've sent them the data. Um, and then in 2015, we um, expanded the MER cohort to an additional six cancer centers called the Lymphoma Epidemiology of Outcomes Cohort or LEO cohort. Um, but that did not include Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, you know, there are limited, you know, due to limitations on resources, we had to kind of pick um, what subtypes and, and how big of a, a cohort we could enroll. And so um, Leo, uh, the official LEO cohort does not include Hodgkin lymphoma or CLL, but some of our LEO institutions continue to enroll them. So for example, through our MER um, mechanism at Mayo and Iowa, we continue to enroll Hodgkin lymphoma patients in, in, our, in our registry. Whenever you have a registry, like the one you mentioned, the, the MER, you started in 2002, Mm -hmm. The information that you thought were relevant to Hodgkin lymphoma and you were collecting in 2002 are vastly different than 2015 or 2023. Yes. So as you have these registries, do you continuously add additional variables and you add additional information that you collect and and 
you know, I mean, you're the expert in statistics and so on. I mean, how does this really impact even a- analyzing things? Because you're mm-hmm. going to have some patients who have all the information you want, others don't, and it becomes a challenging. It does. And it absolutely has to be a living resource as you go through. When I was part of the, the uh, form development of in 2002, 2003 of our original, you know, the, the MER, and we kind of built it off of clinical trials that we had been doing. We actually built it originally in a clinical trials database that was used for the, the NCCTG cooperative group, which Mayo was the kind of the, the statistics uh, data center for. So, you know, it came from humble beginnings. And I remember when we, you know, had our 500th patient, we thought this was amazing. And now we've got 18,000 patients in the registry. But the initial treatment form. So think back to 20, almost 22 years ago, um, I think had 12 treatments on it. And that included, you know, things that we don't use anymore. Name flubdarabine and and there were other things. So um, when you first enrolled in Murrin, we were capturing your treatment information. You had like 12 options to pick from because, you know, rituximab yeah. was just coming around. And now if you look at our our forms for that we have for Mer and Leo, I think there's 160 different treatment options that we select from. So it's constantly um, changing how we, the type of information that we want to capture as the, uh, um, you know, clinical care and state of the science um, continues to evolve. And then, you know, in terms of our survivorship and other things, you know, we we try to guess what's going to be important at three, five, seven years, et cetera. Um, I think we're continuing to to think about that as we move forward. And Leo is, you know, doing a little bit more timely assessments of, of things that are topical now that maybe weren't when we were designing things. And then, and then, Andy, as you're trying to answer these unanswered questions, I guess, or the unmet need type of questions, was that what sparked the? And you looked at the registry. I mean, we, I, the reason I want to ask about the registry is because, I mean, Mer and Leo are really huge, uh, and you guys, Matt, have done. You know, the output has been really nice. I've seen some papers, and it's really great. But despite all of this. I mean, they don't barely have a thousand patients of Hodgkin lymphoma to to answer a lot of these questions. So, is this really what sparked your interest in in going big? Or I mean, and and tell us about maybe the origin of holistic because I presume I don't want to put words in your mouth. I presume this is probably part of the reason you started thinking nothing that exists is going to help us answer these questions. We have to literally sit on a whiteboard and start from scratch. You, you hit the nail on the head, and and Matt and and also Jim Surhan at Mayo are absolute global trailblazers in this field, and and so thankfully um, Jim Surhan is also part of our advisory board, and we've tried to dovetail off of the kind of the construct of how they've set it up, but there are some key differences. So so yes, number one, we said Hodgkin's is not common. How can we pull resources, and what's our most valuable resources data? And yes, we want to find an all-saying biomarker to tell us who, when, and what to give. But if we can combine the world's data, and this was the initial blue sky in 2014, 2015, of clinical trial data, and most clinical trials in Hodgkin's, just to give you a sense of scale and scope, are about 500 to 1,000, maybe the largest are 2,000, and each trial is a little different. So can we literally combine unify and harness the world's data on clinical trials, as well as prospective registry trials that are more enriched with the late effects that Susan mentioned, knit it together in a obviously cogent, statistically valid way. 
to give us outputs and more objective estimation of individual patient outcome. Not to say you should receive X, Y, or Z, but to say, if I'm a patient with this stage, my risk factors, and I receive treatment A, B, or C, these are based on tens of thousands of examples and other simulation modeling that can be done. This is what I expect with the three to five-year outcome with these different treatments, but also can we simulate those late effects based on leveraging the registry? So that's what really set off holistic. And just to fill out the acronym, it's Hodgkin Lymphoma International Study, ST, for individual care. Uh, the website's uh, hodgkinconsortium.org or .com, no, no S on that. And, and I just have to try to give Susan and her team at Tufts a lot of credit because it kind of sounds easier than it is in our initial iteration. It was combining 18 clinical trials, randomized clinical trials, many published in the New England Journal, and five large registries, meaning over 20, 30 years throughout the world, United States, Canada, throughout Europe, Australia, uh, et cetera, into a data, data set. And, and that's, that's tough to do because, as, as you know, you need good data. And you, you mentioned data collected in the past uh, versus not. So there was a common data model with data dictionary and to really harmonize all the different data points. So it all comes in in a cogent manner. So Susan, I mean, the, the plan was to literally contact the authors of all of these papers and send an email or a text or a phone call and say, hey, we want you to collaborate with us on this data. And is that what you did? In, in essence, yes. Um, we The first thing we had to do is Andy and I had to think about what those trials and registries might be. And uh, I think the first assignment that we each had was to make sure we were familiar with the guts of all of those trials so that we understood what the trial was aiming to show, the population included, the treatment received, and what the key outcomes were of the papers. So the first thing we did is we created a uh, a file structure in our shared files where we had every single trial. Then the next thing we did is we made a, a, scheme, a schema for each of the trials so we understood all the key points of randomization and stratification of the population. And then one by one, Andy and I reached out to all of the leads of all of those trials and in some cases, we met at conferences, uh, the International Hodgkin's uh, Conference being one, but also at our, our uh, large oncology or hematology oncology conferences. We, we talked to people about our vision. Uh, we talked about how we would imagine bringing in the data and securing the data. And then literally trial by trial, we uh, we got the data in uh, beginning in 2018 and 2019. The right around the time we were starting uh, the consortium it, it, with this integrated registry, uh, I mean, repository, um, privacy laws changed in Europe. Um, and I think that that was, <laughs> that could have, 
have been our, our downfall, but we prevailed, thankfully. But in, the European Union passed um, uh, very, very strict uh, privacy regulations in May of uh, 2018. And then this was subsequently passed uh, in the United Kingdom. So it, it really affects virtually all the collaborations with Western Europe had to do with how data could be shared and what provisions we had to make for the um, anonymization of all data so that we would not violate patient privacy. That, that was very, very, very challenging. Uh, subsequently, some of the other non-European uh, countries, including Australia and others, also adopted uh, the GDPR legislation. And, uh, and so as our consortium grew beyond Western Europe, we had to contend with, with patient privacy issues. That's very helpful. Um, Matt, I mean, at the first glance, I'm thinking so many studies, lots of these trials have different stages. I mean, you've got trials with for advanced stage, trials for early stage. You've got trials for maybe some older folks, uh, trials for younger than 60. Um, you have studies that have maybe different, you know, they did PET, others did not do PET. I mean, there's so many. So, so I guess I appreciate the fact that this is a huge, important effort, but part of me is thinking, how do you even bring hodgepodge of data from various trials from across the world, different stages? There's a common theme. They all have Hodgkin, but is that enough? I mean, how do I really make sure that this data is going to be clean enough even to be analyzed? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the first thing is you start with quality data. And, and that's what Susan and Andy have done here is really identified, you know, clinical trials where you're getting high quality data, you know what the questions that were asked, you know how the data were collected, and then identifying, you know, prospective registries or other clinical registries that um, have done things in a, in a consistent fashion. And so, I mean, that's the first step, right, is, is bring good data in. Um, the second is, you know, you've got content experts here that can help tease apart some of these things and what matters for one question and what may not matter for a particular question. So given the scope of the things that are being assembled and planned through Holistic, um, having a lot of as much data as possible to work with can then help you figure out, well, what could we use to answer some of these questions? And then, you know, if you're thinking about prognostic modeling or other things, I mean, I, I, I struggle with this sometimes, but in essence, patients at diagnosis maybe haven't changed all that much. The disease is still the, you know, the how we manage patients might be different, um, but I don't know if there's any specific changes in, in Hodgkin lymphoma biology over the past 20 years, maybe small changes. But so that's where um, if you have enough data, you can potentially mitigate some of these factors statistically when you do analysis to say, well, yeah, outcomes have with therapies have improved and outcomes have improved. But essentially, if the patients haven't really changed and the presentation of patients hasn't changed, you can then, you know, do some adjusting to really um, understand maybe how some new therapies might might have impacted um, um, previous patients. Andy, what, I've, Johnny, uh, what I thought, yeah, that, go ahead. To that point is that's critical. What the point you brought up is, and that's why that uh, common data dictionary is so critical and it's very detailed because there's always, even in clinical trials, there's going to be missing data. 
and you need to make sure through different sensitivity analyses and otherwise, sometimes we overestimate some of the changes in a treatment even or a certain effect that it can have. And at the end of the day, you need to study it. And in, in the current state right now, we have about 18,000 patients. It's about 13,000 from large randomized studies and 5,000 in current state from registries. And the good news is you build it, they come. And even though we had started global, it didn't touch all parts of the globe. And so there's another seven to 8,000 in the portal, including countries that aren't in Europe. So such as South America, we have collaborators in Chile and Brazil because we literally want it. It's gonna be different resources to your point, less PET scans, less novel therapeutics. So what are the outcomes in that circumstance? And at the end of the day, the hope is, is that this is bona fide real world, where whatever the circumstance, CAT scan, PET scan, radiation, this treatment, that treatment, that there's some aggregation of data that can give some objective guidance to the provider and the patient. But just to be clear, what you guys received was individual level data. It wasn't that, you know, this is the aggregate data. You actually, you know, Patient number one, this is the information. Patient number two. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm getting just tired thinking about how you take that data. I mean, how, how much of this was manual abstraction versus electronic transfer where you build the software? And I guess I'm just trying to think, I mean, are you looking at every single chart of 18,000 patients and trying to fill an Excel spreadsheet. Andy, remember those chart reviews we did in the past? It's similar. Susan, her team did the work. You can comment, please. So we tried to, um, to automate as much as possible, but there still was a lot of cell-by-cell -cell review of, of data that we had to do. Uh, all the data came to us in electronic forms that were then uh, saved on a secure project drive. So that that's good news. Um, what we found, however, is that some of the data came in ways that we couldn't use it. And that was, for instance, if more than one uh, result was in a particular data cell, that had to be disentangled. And, uh, and then we had to, in many cases, go back to the source and ask for clarification so that we understood the whatever notation they may have used in their data set. The other thing that we talked about is this is an international consortium. And many, many of the uh, case report forms and the column labels on that spreadsheet that you're alluding to were in languages other than English. So we had to make certain that we were using the right interpretation of the labels and uh, and also that the units of analysis were standardized across all sources. There's a lot of data cleaning that goes into that to make sure that all of the units are exactly the same so that when Matt and our other statisticians begin to do the analyses that we're comparing like with like, that's a huge issue. Andy refers to this to me making sausage, and that's how it felt for, for several well, years. I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, Matt, as you were receiving some of this data, I mean, how much input did you go back to Andy and Susan and, and say, well, you know, we need more or different or... 
Uh, I mean, are, were you involved? Like, I, I don't know. Like, is this something where you say um, this is not good enough, or? I, I was just going to say we tried very, very hard with the clinical trials groups not to go back and ask lots of questions. You know, they collected what they collected, and they were not going to generate new data for us. So our questions were principally those of clarification. Um, of units, of um, notation and things like that, but not to get additional data. And then Matt, please continue because you can, the registries were somewhat different. Yeah, and, and I think on a, you know, this brings up a broader topic or broader theme that, you know, to do something like this well is you really need human experts in the room looking at the data, right. understanding where are the holes in the data? Where's where's the data quality really good? Like, hey, this is something that we can definitely use as is. We can really make inference. We believe what we get out of this. And then where are the areas or where are the data elements where we're like, yeah, we have that. We know there's holes in it. Um, we can maybe ask a question, but we might have to look at it in a different way or have to kind of think a little bit more strategically about how we're going to address this question with the data that we have. And again, that's something that you don't get if you just, you know, throw things right. into a, you know, a computer program and have it assemble. It's we really need folks that are, um, understand the nuances of the data that you're assembling, whether it's coming from a registry or you're building a registry, like I know where the but what we can do well and what where, where we maybe don't have things, questions that uh, data that we can address questions in the Mer and Leo. Um, and then I think that's even doubly more so or, or increases exponentially as you start to assemble data from trials, registries, everything, and pull it together for something like this. And so that's where you need, you know, uh, someone like Susan really digging into this data and really understanding the quality of it, as well as uh, Angie Roday, the, the statistician that's been working with Susan on this, and then having the experts uh, that did the trials as part of this group to mm -hmm. to really be able to go back and and um, under uh, query and and have discussions about um, the things that we've pulled together. So, Andy, um, there are ongoing studies right now in Hodgkin. I mean, you you brought the studies that were already published in NEGM registry and so on, but there are some ongoing studies currently that have not been reported. Is this going to be automatic? So, for example, any ongoing study in Hodgkin, uh, it becomes something that uh, they, you will get that data dump into that registry that you into holistic. Yeah, and the quick the quick answer is yes, and but obviously there's a lot more from A to B, and and Susan and her team have built the common data model, Chadi, in such a way that it's dynamic. It's living and breathing, yeah. whether bringing in, as I mentioned, whether Chile and Brazil, other countries, other studies. We just had a great conversation with the LISA as well as the German Hodgkin study group. But to your point, future studies like S1826, of course, that study needs to make its initial publication. And when they feel it's the right time, Yes, we want this to continue and to grow as, as time goes on. And I just want to put a pin in the point, and I've been personally blown away by the statistical and methodologic rigor in this modeling, not, not just the construct of the data, data center and the amalgamation, but some of the early outputs, Chadi. I mean, we did some retrospective real world and so worked with some good statisticians. I mean, these are Matt and Angie Radea at Tufts are, are unbelievable and i i can just tell you me personally chadi underappreciated so i look back at some of the prognostication i had i had published in the past and and maybe you learn as time goes on and 
and not to say there's one best or right way to do it. We have followed something called the tripod statement, like a tripod standing up, but it's it's been used a lot in the medical literature, especially cardiology, somewhat in oncology. Because as you know, Chadi, you see one prognostication predictive model, you've seen one model. And is there a way we could increase reproducibility and transparency? Mm -hmm. When you publish, when you look at our first uh, publication, the Advanced Stage Hodgkin IPI or the AHIPI, you, when you publish it, you have to publish a checklist of 25 different things that you went through, all the different statistical rigor. Um, because sometimes, for example, we stop at discrimination, which just separates into high risk, low risk. What about calibration? What about internal, external validation? Matt can talk more about that. And, and the one thing I'll comment on, Chadi, in a big picture way, I think some of our modeling, I'm going to speak for lymphoma, is too simplistic. You, you think of, and I'll give you an example. We think of the IPI and diffuse charge B cell published in the 1990s. I just finished a 30 patient clinic and I saw two new diffuse arch B cells, but I can't say today, um, almost 30 years later, that if someone has an IPI of zero or five, I know how to treat them any differently. And it's not the fault of the IPI, but I think what I mean by our models being too simple, when we dichotomize a value, less than 60 over 60, too simplified. You know, we know, and I'm speaking for Hodgkin lymphoma, that some of the older model above or less than 45, well, when you dichotomize, you assume everyone under 60 is the same and everybody over 60 is the same, and you assume it's linear. What we found in Hodgkin lymphoma advanced stage, it's not a linear scale. It's a curve to the relapse pattern, and it was different, not surprisingly, whether you were 22, 42, 62 in the model. So everything we're doing is, is on a continuous data scale, whether it's a lab value or age. And when we've looked at it statistically, there's better what's called calibration. Um, when you look at, is the predicted outcome the same as the expected outcome? Well, and, the, and so that's the rigor is really important in this modeling. Yeah, and I agree. And I think, I mean, Matt, the, the main issue is oftentimes is, and I, I mean, I joke, but already I don't joke. I, I, I often say, in a lymphoma community, the lymphoma community has done a great job in prognosticating. We have not done a good job in tailoring therapy based on prognosis. You see a patient in clinic, you're able to tell that this patient may not do actually as good as the patient next door, but you treat them the same. So is this is this uh, why is that how much of this is data driven that we don't have this how much of this biology i mean here and are, are we able to resolve this using the holistic approach that you guys are trying to do yeah i, I mean it's easier to create a prognostic model than a predictive model in general um i would say if you think about subtyping in lymphoma we don't treat all lymphomas the same um, you know, you can think of some of the immunohistochemistry and the path workup as predictive modeling that you know that if a patient has DLBCL versus follicular, you're not going to give a patient with DLBCL BR if they can get our chop because, you know, so, so there are some, you know, when we think about how we classify diseases, that might be the best we've done in terms of the predictive space. But in terms of um, coming up with specific biomarkers, I think that's continuing to be an area of 
um, that that of work. Um, it becomes more challenging as our diseases get more fragmented in terms of, I mean, it's, it's good that we're able to come up with uh, additional subtyping and molecular subtypes. And, um, but that, that makes for smaller studies to do, um, to really look at things in terms of sample size. And so that's why projects like this, where you are assembling the world's data um, to do modeling provides you the sample size to do things statistically, the breadth of patients that it's not, you're not going to fit a model that just works for patients in the Eastern US. This is something that is reflective of Hodgkin lymphoma as globally as we can possibly do it. So the things that are discovered in this type of work should hopefully translate to as many people as possible around the world. And so I think we need to continue to do this type of work. But it, it as you, we've discussed, there's a lot of work that goes into just a data assembly um, it, and then you know all the funding that's required to do that as well. And so to do a model well takes a lot of time and effort, but I think we as a community, lymphoma community and research community in general need to, I agree with Andy, need to be doing better models on bigger, better data sets. So maybe Susan, I mean, two things, if you can share with us a little bit of the output that you've generated so far from this registry. I mean, I think, look, the field from a patient perspective is very eager to more tailored therapy. I mean, I I think that um, the question that probably patients and advocates would ask, um, show us the output so far, but mm -hmm. is the output enough to drive clinical care or is the output a linchpin to conducting a prospective study after that? Like, you know, is this just a, a, a hypothesis generating where you can get a prognostic model and then use that to randomize patients treatment A versus B? Or is this by itself going to be standalone where you can have some output that's going to change the way we take care of patients? What we've produced so far are two baseline predictive models um, for early one for early stage and one for advanced stage using patients own characteristics and their disease characteristics at the time of initial diagnosis and use that information to predict uh, progression and overall survival over the first five years after diagnosis I think that's a huge area of progress. Uh, we're very happy that we were able to do that uh, for, for each of those two. Uh, I think we learned a lot in building the models. I think we also learned a lot about building teams. I think that uh, each of the teams had a very hardcore modeling group. Um, Andy has mentioned many of our key players. I would also like to add Jenica Upshaw, who's just been outstanding in that regard. I think that we also brought in our clinical colleagues and had them reacting on a monthly basis to the output that we were generating in the models so that it was a dynamic process of a group of us kind of grinding through the data and then giving feet giving and getting feedback from our clinical colleagues so that the end result was something that was recognizable and relevant to the clinicians, which is essentially what we really wanted to do. 
We're not finished yet, though. I think that we that represents what we know about a patient at baseline. Our next step is to build much more complicated models, which are called multi-state models. And those take into account treatment selection, treatment response, and treatment failure. And move the patient, the theoretical patient, move that patient through each of the relevant health states, meaning diagnosis, cure after initial therapy, potential relapse after initial therapy, et cetera. And, and the model iterates, meaning it goes through each of those steps depending on the patient's outcome. So the AHIP we're talking about, Andy, on a, I mean, quick summary of the AHIP, uh, this was yeah. published already. It was, yeah, it was an oral presentation, contemporary published in the JCO at the last ASH uh, 2022. And as Susan alluded to it, that model took 10 months to build. And it was painstaking in a good way. I know it doesn't go together. Good way. Yeah. Just the teamwork and the validation and the month, the uh, bi-monthly modeling group and the big monthly uh, group giving feedback. And so it ended up with a certain number of factors for progression-free and overall survival at five years. And it's looking at PFS and OS over a five-year, not at a five-year period. Right. And they're all individualized variables. And so whether it's age, albumin, bulky disease, gender, exact hemoglobin, exact lymphocyte count, stage, and you receive that output. Obviously, there, there's an online app for that. But that is just a start. And and we did see some blind, we, we have realized, I should say, some blind spots, Chadi. You know, there's ever, never a perfect project or clinical trial. We didn't have enough older patients. So we're going to be starting a global older patient Hodgkin lymphoma uh, prospective cohort observational study. We didn't have enough relapse refractory. So with Alex Herrera, Allison Moskowitz, and, and others in Europe, we have a over 2,000 patient cohort of relapse refractory to fill out that multi-state model. And then ultimately, Chadi, we also want to include in the model estimation of whether you say post-acute kind of effects one to 10 years and late effects, and we'll lean on the registry data. And there'll need to be some modeling with that to your earlier point about treatment 20 years ago being outdated now. So there's ways to model that. So current treatment, what do we estimate late effects to be 20 years from now? When I say late effects, arterial late effects, second cancers, HRQL, um, and then there's also, of course, can we, and this is a future date, maybe a new grant submission, things like cost of care, patient preference, start to layer additional aspects and just to keep the model living and breathing and as dynamic as possible. I was going to ask, do you guys have enough funding to keep going? Well, we have enough funding to last for the next three years. And, <laughs> That's and so, good. Yeah. So, uh, but at the end of the day too, it's, what this honestly, Chadi, our hope is, at least I'll speak for myself, is we want this to continue in some perpetuity. Yeah. That we haven't opened it up as even though we call it a consortium, it's still a fairly tight-knit group of 80, 90 people who are mainly the PIs of these national and sometimes international studies. At some point, like Matt and Jim have done with the Leo and the Mer, 
and it gets more complicated, frankly, is do we open it up so outside folks can submit ideas? And we do want to do that at some point, but we just don't want to, you know. Well, I mean, I think I think uh, maybe my uh, I want to conclude by having each one give a final thoughts. But I think the one thing I would suggest just after listening to you, first of all, this is like a Hercules effort. I mean, I'm going to table, I'm going to label this episode as a Hercules Hodgkin effort. But what is missing is uh, what Andy, we always call real world uh, patients, right? I mean, I think all of these patients that you're enrolling in holistic are clinical trial patients and registry patients. But I, maybe the registry patients represent a little bit more real world because they really, it's an easy type of a, you know, it's not really through an interventional clinical trial. Um, I wonder if you just need to enrich for some of these, like if you open it more to community sites, large community centers and other institutions that are treating these patients, um, hopefully you'll get more of this real world data that uh, might help you understand what's happening outside of clinical trials. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's that fine line between data integrity and real worldness, you could say. And so you're right. The the registry studies, and we we have five, you know, through United States, Australia, and British Columbia, as well as Princess Margaret, are all comers. Uh, but that is, you could say, the smaller, it's maybe a third of the consortium. So another venture we've talked about is accessing um, data sources such as SEER Medicare. Now, it might not have the depth of data we desire, but it could be more real world to your point. But we are enriching it. So the Danish lymphoma group, Chadi, has over 2,500 patients, reg um, prospective registry that are coming in, and the Chilean and Brazilian and, and others. We're talking with uh, our Dutch colleagues, Berthe Aleman and Flora van Leeuwen, who have many thousand cohorts. So it's just, it's yeah. so exciting, and I'm just just so thankful for all of our global collaborators. It, it has been a come together moment. Well, congratulations. I mean, this is really um, highlights the power of big data and what you could do with collaboration and big data. Susan, anything I missed, I did not ask you that should have been, I should have asked you or you want to highlight to listeners I may have completely overlooked. I just want to echo the comment you made about the importance of uh, patient involvement and to really highlight the fact that from the get-go, we have included virtually all the major uh, patient advocacy groups uh, for lymphoma worldwide in, in our consortium. They are members of the consortium. They come to our meetings. They are included in all of our mailings. Uh, and many of our uh, workers and many of our uh, advocates are survivors of Hodgkin lymphoma and they uh, have lived this and are very, very happy that we are attempting to study the things that we are. So we, we get a lot of great feedback from them. Um, and Andy, I don't know if you want to echo that further, but yeah, yeah no, I completely agree. You, you want it. I mean, it's great to have all of the academic experts and and we we do have some community experts and there is some more community data, but I think it can always be more and better and to really round it out. But you want to have it through the lens of the patient at the end of the day and to make sure this makes sense for them. Absolutely. Matt, anything I may have overlooked uh, you would like to share? 
Well, I mean, I think I just want to, again, thank Susan and Andy um, for the work that they've done in leading this. And, um, you know, as a statistician, being able to be involved in a project of this scope with this level of quality of data across the globe, and then to be able to do quality work in terms of the analyses that we're doing and, and do have projects and have models that we know um, based on the breadth of the data, the clinical people involved, the expertise in the room, that the things that we doing are doing are going to make an impact for patients. I mean, as a statistician, that's just a real, um, you know, highlight of your career. It's when your you dream come true. You've got a lot of data and you can analyze. It's exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, I'm very, very appreciative to be a part of this and lend uh, what I can to this, this bigger uh, collective effort. Well, guys, I really thank you for taking time. I hope uh, a lot of folks listen to to this. I, I think this is a model that should honestly be uh, duplicated, provided funding is available to pretty much every single... There's no reason why this cannot be done in every cancer, uh, except just the lack of funding. That's the reality. But there's a lot that we can uh, capture from big data. I just love the fact that you're able to get individual level data it is the biggest shortcoming in every analysis i've seen and you've just overcome this and the other thing i'll finish up with is you know andy mentioned this started in 014 019 or 015 and the first output was 2223 and we're taping this in 24 so for anyone who is listening it takes a village it takes a lot to actually go from point a to point b and just kudos to you i mean I, i'm honestly just speechless of the effort that you guys have done thank you thanks johnny it's exciting what much more to come but to your point yeah it's built in such a way that not just cancer is other diseases hopefully it's, yeah. it's something some of the methodology can be recapitulated thank you and uh, until next time guys all right guys Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening and for being on this podcast. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to watch all of the podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and send your comments and suggestions about the podcast and about topics as well as future guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, write a brief review, and share it with your friends and colleagues this will actually make a lot of sense because it's going to make it easier to find and will make folks able to uh, find topics of interest to them. And as usual, I can't leave you without a saying. And today's saying is from George Bernard Shaw, science never solves a problem without creating 10 more. Until next time, take care.